right. Guess I'm not the only one that's having issues this morning. I'll turn these off. All right. Good morning. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. Just to give you a forewarning, I guess, uh, we're going to do a little bit of review first before we jump into this passage, um, and then my goal is between today and next, next uh, Lord's Day to be able to finish chapter 10 out. Um, but first, I know the last, which was two weeks ago, last time that uh, I was here with you that we had a review, but... I think it's important. I don't even remember. And that, that, uh, anyway, uh, everybody did. Yes. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, in reality, it's important that you have a good grasp of everything up to this point to, to fully appreciate what comes next in the book of Hebrews. Um, and, and as we've said before, I mean, Hebrews, ha, you know, there, there's a, a flow, an outline, but it's not necessarily like a one then moves on to another point and so on. I mean, the, everything, once something's introduced, it, the, it just, it's always in the picture, all right? In other words, it, it's continually being used again uh, throughout the book to be able to uh, again, move on and bring more information and more proof, if you want to say, into uh, the argument that the writer of Hebrews, whether that was Paul or whoever, is um, uh, making for the superiority of Christ. So I want to do this this morning. I'm going to read just the first several words, really, of verse 19 of chapter 10, which that's where we are. Um, then we'll have a word of prayer. And then in a little while, you're going to get a chance to read the rest of chapter 10. But before we do that, I want to uh, take a few moments to uh, just reiterate again uh, where we are and what we've seen so far in the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews 10, 19, here the Bible says, notice, notice these words, having therefore brethren, and then of course says boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, but having Therefore, brethren. So whenever you, you've heard it said, right? Whenever you see the word therefore, what should you do? Find out what it's there for, right? Uh, it's, it's drawing a conclusion. It's, 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 it's a, 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 a word here that's used to say, okay, based on everything we've seen up to this point, this is what, and then it goes into explaining what it's going to explain, but it's based on everything that had been said up to this point, all right? So that's very, very important. Remember, the book of Hebrews is all about what? All right? Christ is better. Jesus is better. The superiority of Christ. It's the epistle of better things. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different look at a number of things about the Lord Jesus than what the rest of the New Testament portrays. It uh, doesn't mean it's, it's different in the sense that it's wrong or it's presenting something contrary, but it just pre it presents some unique uh, views and some unique information on the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is, what He has done, and what He's doing for us based uh, or compared to some of the other uh, rest of the New Testament. And so it's, it's very important that we uh, have a good understanding, again, of where we are so far uh, before we can really fully appreciate what he is about to do and say in the scheme of the book of Hebrews. So let's pray, and then we'll just quickly review some things here, all right? Thank you, Lord, this morning for this opportunity again to... Uh, open your word, particularly this, this portion of your word, the book of Hebrews. It's a special book, um, not that it's better than any other part of your word, but Lord, it's, it's special and it's, it's uh, unique in many ways. And Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you for what we see here about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
for, because who he is and what he has done for us. And because of that, then, what the book now is going to move on to of what we should do. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you'd help us to have, again, just a, a good grasp of, of what's going on here and uh, what this uh, portion of your word is teaching us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So thinking of the first uh, 10 chapters, or at least up to this point, we're not quite through chapter 10, but uh, up to this point in Hebrews, thinking of a big skeleton, okay, and, uh, you know, the, the big framework, if you want to say, then there's, there's a lot of details you could hang on that framework, but there were three big, I say big words, they're not like big long words, but big in the sense of what they're doing in Hebrews, all right, three Big words that all begin with the letter P that form the big framework of the book of Hebrews. What are those three words? And principle, which is what we're getting into here. But uh, these first two words, person and priesthood, are extremely important. When we think about the superior person of Christ, of course, it's the first four chapters, basically, that, uh, that cover that. And in doing so, there are three main, you're going to see in this outline here, more than three items, but three main ideas that are presented about the person of Christ and why he is superior. Before we get to uh, number two and three in there, do you remember what those were? First one, of course, is his deity. In fact, he's God. I mean, and, and, and again, you could just stop right there, right? And, and that should settle it. But obviously, the book doesn't stop there, and it goes into far more than that. But because he's God, obviously, he is superior in, in his person, all right? And there's a, three areas in chapter one that are talked about there. We're not going to get into that right now. Um, and then, then at the first several verses of chapter 2, you have that first warning passage. Anybody remember how many warning passages we've said are in the book of Hebrews? We haven't seen them all yet. Five warning passages, all right? And they're, it's interesting, they're just kind of, they're not necessarily advancing the argument, but they're just inserted to get people's attention and to demonstrate the seriousness of what is being presented in Hebrews. And, and it's like, you know, kind of smacking something with, with a, you know, a hammer just to get your attention or a judge you know, slamming the gavel down. and just it, it, it demands that we listen up and we consider what's being said. And so in that first warning passage, basically the gist of it is, it's the shortest of those warning passages, but basically just telling us to pay special attention because these matters are very serious. But then the second area that's presented in the argument of the superior person of Christ is his perfect humanity, the fact that he's man. Now, he's not just any man. He's God who took on human nature and flesh, of course, but human nature, not just a body, not just God, you know, like put on a body like we put on clothes. I mean, he took on humanity and really all that that means. And there's a number of important aspects of that. Some important aspects of that are talked about in other places in the, the New Testament. But in Hebrews chapter 2, which is primarily the chapter dealing with Christ's humanity there, there's two main reasons. They're not going to appear right here, but does anybody remember what those are? Two main reasons why it's stressing that it was imperative that he became man. One was to recover man's dominion over God's creation. Remember, Adam was given that dominion by God, basically forfeited that when he sinned. But Christ came, and through his perfect obedience, he recovered the right, if you want to say, for man to, be, to have dominion over God's creation again. And he, as Man, as the God-man, but as man, he will rule on this earth and exercise that right to that reign. One day, coming in the future, it's at least seven years from now, if not farther, but uh, at least that, but in, of course in his millennial reign. 
but his perfect humanity. Chapter 3 stresses basically the first six verses his faithfulness, all right? The fact that he was 100% totally faithful to God. And I know I've repeated these things numerous times, but I'm doing that on purpose, okay? Because, again, if you think through these things, you can, you can really think through and present the whole idea of the book of Hebrews. Then we see the second warning passage pretty much finishing out that first section uh, of chapters one and four, one through four in the book of Hebrews. That second warning passage was a little more in depth than the first. If you remember, basically the idea was beware lest you miss God's rest through unbelief. It's not a matter of losing your salvation. It's a matter of missing salvation. And that, that's the point that's being driven home there. And again, it's, it's, it uses some serious language on purpose to get people's attention because salvation is a serious matter, all right? And then we see at the end, in fact, I want to turn there and just read that passage because when you think about it in light of this, it makes sense, okay? You have this, these several verses here that close out chapter 4 that make a transition into the next main area of argument in the book of Hebrews. And those verses tell us, seeing then that you have a, we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Remember, uh, chapter 1 stressed that as God, where is Christ right now? He's, I couldn't intelligibly understand any of those answers, but he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's how it's said in chapter 1. It's that phrase is used numerous times, and sometimes it's worded different, okay? But it's all, he's also said to be at the right hand of the throne of God. He's at the right hand of God. I mean, but the bottom line is he has a position of, of course, authority and exaltation uh, that he is sitting in right now. And he's there, all right? So seeing these things are true, seeing we have... Uh, this kind of high priest, all right? We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Why is that true? Because he became man. See, that's, that's bringing in not just the fact that he's God, but because he's man, he is a particularly, I'll just use this word, empathetic high priest. He knows the feelings of our infirmities. He experienced the difficulties of human life. He was the brunt, if you want to say, of man's sin, man's sinful condition here on this earth. He experienced it to a greater extent probably than any of us really do because he's the only one that's totally innocent. And... So we see this, and, and then verse 16. Now, keep this in mind, because this, again, makes this transition. There, let us therefore, all right, come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And the idea primarily in that is, all right, we need to come, we need to go to God through Christ. And that's, I think, primarily in the context talking about salvation, although by principle, obviously, that's true for us for the rest of our Christian lives, all right? Which, of course, you know, prayer would fit into that. But, but because of who he is and where he is, all right, we can come to God through him. Then we, the next five chapters or so, six chapters, go into an argument concerning the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. Let me hurry here. You see, first of all, just a, a, a synopsis or a quick summary of his priesthood. Talked about, just laid out the four basic qualifications, what a priest did in the first several verses. And then the next several verses go on to show how Christ, he met those, he did exactly those things. So he qualifies as a priest, all right? We have then the third warning passage, which was longer than the first two, all right? So each, each time you see it kind of gets a little bit more in-depth here, all right? The third warning passage, again, is very serious, and there's some very strong language used there, but you could probably sum it up by just saying, it's serious, don't turn from Christ, because there's no other hope. And there were people in the day in which Hebrews was written 
that directly had those personal experiences that are talked about there that were in danger of missing Christ, being so close to him and yet missing him. That, that's a serious thing. Now, by principle, I think those things can apply to people today, but I, I personally believe that in the very specific things listed there, those, those six qualifications that are there, probably only a person in the first century could meet those qualifications. But again, I think by principle, people do it today, okay? There's a lot of people that are religious and whatever, you know, have a, have a, a, an awareness, a, an illumination. They've, they've, they've had privilege. They've had spiritual experiences. I, I, I believe I had spiritual experiences before I was saved, but until I was saved, I didn't have Christ. And it's possible to be very close and yet miss Christ. And you remember the, the, I think, the prime example in the Bible that we see of who fits that bill. Do you remember who that was? Judas Iscariot. You know, people talk today, well, how can this happen? And that, just look at Judas. I mean, is there literally anybody today that can get closer to Jesus and miss him? Than what, Jesus, than what Judas did? I mean, anyway. Uh, but you have this, this third warning passage here. Then, then chapter 7, chapter 7, 8, 9, and the first half of chapter 10 re, uh, really drive home four main areas concerning the priesthood of Christ and why his priesthood is superior to that of the Old Testament priest. Do you remember what the emphasis in chapter 7 is? The source of his priesthood, what does that have to do with? He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And, you know, there's a long, lot of things that could be said about that, but Melchizedek is superior to Aaron. That's what chapter 7 demonstrates. And so Christ's priesthood, the order of his priesthood, is superior to the order of Aaron's priesthood, right? Chapter 8 dealt, again, prime, and there's these ideas, they're, they're intermingled throughout these chapters, yes. But, again, trying to give some structure to it, I think you can see the main idea is that of the script of his priesthood, which deals with what? The, you think of a script, something written, all right? So, the new covenant versus the old covenant. Yes, it is part of the word of God, all right? And, and the primary passage that's quoted is Jeremiah 31, but God said he would make a new covenant. And he would write it on their hearts, not just write it on tables of stone like he did the Sinai covenant, right? And then chapter 9, you have the sanctuary of his priesthood, all right? Because where Christ carried out his priestly work is superior to a tent in the wilderness, or even a golden-covered building in Jerusalem, all right? Those are made by human hands here on this earth. His sanctuary is, number one, it's permanent. Nobody can do away with it. Secondly, it's not made with human hands. It's made by God. And thirdly, it's the picture, or it's the real thing that the Old tabernacle, the Old Testament tabernacle and temple were pictures of, all right? They were after the pattern that was shown Moses, right? So somehow, I don't know if, I don't know exactly how God did that, but he showed Moses exactly what to do, whether he let Moses have a glimpse of the real tabernacle, you know, I don't know, I don't know. But bottom line is, he was shown what was to be done and the, the real thing in a way that he was able to make it, have it made, uh, here, the earthly sanctuary. So the heavenly sanctuary, his, and, the, and the other main idea that's brought in there, but it takes place there, that's why it's included, I think, in chapter 9, is that that's where the blood of Christ was sprinkled. Remember, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went into that holiest place in the tabernacle only one, one day a year. Now, he went twice on that day, but once a year, in that sense, he went in there and sprinkled blood. And that was a picture, again, of what Christ would do and what God has always seen, by the way. God never, you know, those, 
that blood of the goats and bulls and so on that were sprinkled in that earthly tabernacle, they were never effective in God's sight. They were only following instructions, following a pattern. So in that sense, it was faith, right? But uh, they were pictures of what Christ has done. First Peter says that Christ was slain as a lamb before the foundation of the world. Now, obviously, that didn't happen before creation, historically speaking, but that's, what, that's how God has always seen it. And that's why God has, you know, the Christ, what he did, his blood has always been the basis for God being able to accept man, only and always. Even Adam and Eve in the garden, when God killed the animals and there was obviously bloodshed and they were covered with, with coats of skins, I mean, probably would have been a number of animals to make up enough coats of skins to cover them both, unless it was an elephant or, you know, I don't, but, but whatever, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, but the point is, those were pictures. Everything throughout the Old Testament was pictures. And then the sacrifice of his priesthoods, what's, what's reiterated here in chapter 10 up through verse 18, so basically the first half of chapter 10, his sacrifice. And, and, and Words don't even do it justice to demonstrate how superior his sacrifice was to all of the Old Testament sacrifices. Every one of those specific sacrifices, and there were lots of them throughout the Old Testament, but every one of them were some kind, in some way, a picture of what Christ would, would do. All right? And he fulfilled all of that. And so there's no more. I think I got another statement. Yeah, the special human body of the Lord Jesus, of course, was sacrificed on the cross. Now, uh, and, and as we said, remember, there's, there's blending and recirculating of these ideas throughout these chapters. Now I want to get into uh, chapters 10 through 13 here. So all of that in mind, when you come to chapter 10, verse 13, 19, where it says, having therefore, brethren, all of that stuff is wrapped up in those words, having therefore. This is what we have, is what he says. This is what we have. And he makes an appeal here. And this moves on to this third main area in the book of Hebrews, the superior principle, which is faith in Christ, not just Faith in God in a generic sense, but faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as he has now been completely revealed. He's completed his mission here on this earth, and God tells us all about that in the New Testament. Having, therefore, these things, all right? We must have faith in Christ specifically. And really, the rest of chapter 10 here, verses 19 through 39, uh, comprise what I'll just call a transition, a warning, and an exhortation. And there's more than one exhortation in here, okay? We're going to see at least three of them this morning. But that's what's all involved in this passage, moving now into talking about this principle of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This portion of Hebrews draws from all the doctrinal foundation that's been laid and moves on to the practical application of Christ's superior person and priesthood to our lives. In other words, who He is and what He has done is the only way to have access to God. And I probably should have put this here, but I didn't. I was running out of room on the slide. But to have access to God and to be able to serve God in this life. Right? He is the only hope that any of us have. We must come to God through Him in faith, faith in Christ, and we must live our lives here by faith. That's talked about here in this passage. And we are to look for His return in faith. It's all involved. Faith is the principle that governs everything in our lives. It's all about that. All right. In fact, you remember back in, it was chapter 9, the end of chapter 9, uh, the sentence is in verse 27 and 28, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. 
And that's the emphasis of that, of that statement. He, he died one time. He was offered one time, once for all time. It was only needed once. It was effective completely so that nothing else had to be added or whatever, all right? But it says, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And the last part of that verse, we kind of skipped over it a little bit. I mean, you know, we, we kind of went fast over it. But think about this, and it says, and unto them that look for him. Shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation? Again, the, the looking for his return is part of the whole picture of faith that we're to have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he, I mean, that is a major theme of the New Testament, that Jesus said, I will come again. And there's a lot of things involved in that, but throughout the New Testament. Now, we don't have all the details and timing and so on necessarily, maybe you would say until you get to the book of Revelation, which really was probably, you know, most likely written after all the other books of the New Testament were completed, all right? But we have the theme throughout the New Testament that we're to be living, watching for His return. And that's the great motivation of living the Christian life, is He could come back any time. And we, by faith, understand that, and we live accordingly. That's the plan. That's, that's what we're to be doing. Now, whether we do that all the time or not, obviously that can be a different story. But that's, that's the whole plan of a life of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all part of that. All right, so what I want to do is spend the remainder of our time here this morning. I'm going to go ahead and Get out of that, because i got to use my computer for something else here. I'll just do it right here, I guess. But I want to look at these verses here in, uh, in chapter 10, particularly, as I said, I kind of gave you an overview of what all these verses, verse 19 through 39, are about. They, they serve as a transition, obviously, moving from the subject of, his person and priesthood to now, how do, you know, what does that, what, what's that mean for us? What are we to do? The principle, the practical principle of it, all right? And then you have, you have, there's really three paragraphs in the rest of chapter 10, excuse me, and verse 19 through 25 make a paragraph, and we're just going to call that the transition, all right? Verse 26 through 31 are another paragraph, and we're going to call that the warning, all right? Um, and then verse 32 through 39, make another paragraph, and we're just going to call that the exhortation. Now, we're going to see some exhortation before we get there, but just for sake of trying to organize the thought, we're going to think of it that way. All right? So, having therefore brethren. So, because of all this, now you'll see this great transition taking place here in the book. He's moving on. He says, brethren, uh, having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and I, I, I guess I mentioned at the beginning that I was going to have you all read, but uh, I think for sake of time I'll just read a few verses here. Um, and having an high priest over the house of God... Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with an e from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, you'll notice the first period that you'll see in, as far as punctuation in those verses occurs right there. It's all one sentence, verse 19 down through verse um, 22, all right? And notice the word in ver the words at the beginning of verse 22. Let us draw near. Now notice the first words in verse 23. Let us hold fast. Down in verse 24, and let us consider. All right. These are three. These are the three main ideas, actions in these verses. Everything else is modifying them somehow or another. All right, they're, they're giving us more information about those three things. But there's three exhortations here. We're to draw near, we're to hold fast, and we are to consider. That's the, the main thoughts of, of these verses here, verse 19 through 25. 
And again, everything else somehow or another contributes to giving us more information about one of those three, one of those three statements. All right. So the first one, let us draw near. Now notice he begins in verse 19, having therefore brethren, but what do we have? All right, therefores, based on what, who Christ is, what he's done, what do we have because of that? At least we should say, what do we have opportunity for? All right, and that is, we can have boldness to enter into where? The holiest by the blood of Jesus, all right? I mean, think about this from the Jewish mindset in the first century, all right? They knew no one was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies in that tabernacle or temple, right? Except for the one man who was prescribed by God to do it. And he had, there was a lot of things that had to be done and met for him to be able to do that and live, all right? Uh, but the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know what? We all, what, what God wants, it's not just that we have this opportunity, but in the whole scheme of the New Testament as well, it's very much emphasized that this is what God wants. He wants for us to come. He wants it more than we want it. <laughs> I mean, that's easy to see with people that are unsaved still. They apparently don't have a whole lot of much time for God and much thought for God, but God loves them. God desires for them to come to Him. All right, remember 2 Peter chapter 3? God's not slack concerning His promise, as some men count, slack, count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Why? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, they can only come to Him one way, and that's the way that's talked about here in Hebrews chapter 10. But God wants them to come. There's only one way possible for men to come to God. All roads don't lead to heaven. All roads don't lead to God. And it, it is more than just a matter of sincerity. Sincerity is involved. But people that are sincerely wrong are wrong. Some people think that might sound cruel. God gives us the information we need in His Word. And His Word is, for the most part, readily available. And, by the way, for areas of the world that is not necessarily readily available, whose responsibility is it to get it there? Ours. But he says, having therefore, brethren, boldness, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. In other words, what he's done. Think about the previous chapters and speaking about his priesthood and... Uh-huh. Somebody get a shotgun? Well, got something on the porch out there. Uh, anyway... Lost my thought here. Uh, anyway, be, because of what he's done, he's made the way, right? And we can have boldness. It's a present reality is the idea of the, the language in verse 19 and 20 here. This, this is a present reality for us that we can have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God. In other words, those are all true. It's a present reality, and because of that, the main thought associated with those now is in verse 22, let us draw near. That's what we're to do. Because Christ has made the way. He has gone before. He's opened the way. He has created access to God for man. So what should we do? According to verse 22, draw near. Now, the word that's translated draw near, I mean, basically means to come to, to approach, to draw near. It can also have the idea of to assent to. In other words, in your thinking, you're... you're 
you're, you're giving, you know, belief, credence to certain truths, all right? But the idea I think he's literally saying is, you know, for a person to, uh, you know, Christ has made the way, but each and every human being is responsible to, make, to take advantage of that, if I can word it that way. To come to God, because it's available, but it's not automatically yours or anybody else's. You have to respond. That's the point. So draw near is what he's saying. Let us come to him. And I, I have some references here of how the word's used in other places in the New Testament. I mean, it, it's pretty cut and dry, I would say, but just to come to, to come near, to approach, all right? And, and that's certainly the way it seems to be used here, just to approach God. But we have to do it, he says, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And the reason that can be true is if you're saved, now the next several phrases here apply to somebody that is saved, okay? Because... Christ has done this for us, and the idea is if he's, you know, he's made the way, yes, but if you are saved, if you've come to him in faith, these things have happened to you. And that is, um, your heart has been sprinkled from an evil conscience, your body's been washed with pure water. Now, some, some jump on this and, and take a, you know, insert baptism here or something. It's, I don't believe that's at all what's in, in the passage. Think of these things that are being worded here in the Old Testament context because he's making a comparison here, right? The Old Testament context was those priests, all right? Remember, the people couldn't come near. Instead, there was a portion of the people that were were set aside, were sanctified, consecrated by God to approach God, do service to and for Him on behalf of the people, right? They were called the priests, right? Then out of them, there was just one that was the high priest that could do something that none of the other priests could do. Go into that holiest place, right? But all the priests had to be sanctified. They all had to be sprinkled, Right When the tabernacle was first set up, there were animals slain, and Moses was the one that did the sprinkling at that point. He sprinkled Aaron, his sons, all the various pieces of furniture that were involved in the tabernacle, whether the outside or inside of everything, had to be consecrated. It had to be sprinkled to be dedicated for that service, and that's the idea here. If you're saved... Your heart has been sprinkled. You've been sanctified. That word's been used a number of times in the book of Hebrews so far. Chapter 10 talks about that. uh, Well, let me just read it. Verse 14. It's right there. By one offering hath he perfected forever them that are sanctified. All right. Um, And interesting, he says perfected forever. You only need to be sanctified in that sense. Now, there's different types of sanctification for the Christian in the New Testament, but in this sense, you only have to be sanctified one time. You only have to be sprinkled, set aside one time, and that's something that does happen to a person at salvation. There are other types of sanctification. In fact, other types are going to be talked about later in Hebrews, but this is the idea of dedicating you so that you can do what God calls you to do. You can do what you, you're saved. You have a new life. In fact, it's interesting how everything in here in like verse 20, it says by a new and living way. It's interesting that both of those ideas are brought in here. A new and living way. It, the, the idea of new is, is makes sense because it's compared to the old way. All right. Uh, but he says a living way. Everything that has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, has to do with you and the Lord Jesus Christ, has to do with your salvation, can be described with the word life. Everything about salvation is life compared to what? What's the opposite of life? Everything regarding man's natural state, his natural condition, his lost state before its death. But everything in salvation is life. And it's because of Jesus Christ. 
Not because you or I, but because of him. All right? Life in him. This new and living way. Because of all this stuff is what he's saying. Because we can, we can draw near. And we can do it with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And I think you, you know, the idea is real faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not something that we conjure up. All right? We have to have a response from our hearts to God, which is faith. But at the same time, God does a work in the heart that produces real faith. Interesting, I'm not going to take time to go there, but 1 Timothy chapter 1, read it sometime. Paul, of course, writing to Timothy, he gives a snippet in several verses, you could say, reflecting on his salvation, his testimony, all right? And that's the passage where he says, you know, I was the cheapest of sinners and so on. But he talks about there how that when he got saved, God brought in faith and love into his heart. Those are things that God does in a person's heart when he saves them, when he changes them. There are responsibilities that we have following that, yes, to live those things out. But without God doing that, we can't have that. It, it's a work of God in our hearts. Right? Then, yes, we have responsibility to be working those things out, living those things out, but it's a work that God does in our hearts. Right? He says, let's draw uh, near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Having, and the idea is because, okay, I'm, I'm going to... We can do that as a Christian because our hearts have been sprinkled and the... The, the language that's used here is the idea that our hearts, it's something that has been done and completed, and the results of it carry on. Our hearts have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And our bodies have been washed with what? And again, I don't think it's talking about baptism, but it's talking about, again, it's, it's, a, it's a reflection back on what the Old Testament required that priests had to go through in order to be able to go into the tabernacle and serve, all right? What was, uh, when once, once they went into the courtyard of the tabernacle, there were several pieces of furniture there. The first one was what? A brazen altar, but what was the next one? The brazen laver where they had to wash, right? Now, they didn't get in it and take a full bath, but they had to wash their hands and their feet, and that was a ceremonial thing, okay? You know, uh, but the idea is we've been washed in Christ through what he's done. I mean, we've been sprinkled, we've been set aside, dedicated, and we've been washed for service for him. All right? In salvation. It's something that happens instantaneous in salvation. Now, again, yes. In, you could say other parts of the Bible bring into the picture that we have a responsibility to be living clean and so on, yes, and confessing sin and so on as believers. But that, the emphasis here is it's talking about something that has been done, done for us, all right, through Christ. Um, and then the, the second exhortation here, not only are we to draw near, but we should hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Hold fast. I mean, literally, the word here means to, to latch on. Other uh, this word is a word that's used in the New Testament for, like, if somebody was arrested, they were apprehended. Um, it has that kind of, that idea of meaning, but also the idea of literally just latching on to someone with your hands and holding on to something. We're to hold our profession. Now, this doesn't mean that our salvation is depending upon our holding on to the end, so to speak, okay? There are some people that teach something like that. That's not the idea here again. But remember what he's doing. He's exhorting people to, number one, come to faith in Christ. And then for those that have a profession of faith in Christ, don't turn from it. Now, a real person a real saved person is not going to lose their salvation. That doesn't mean that they're not going to have mess-ups and falter and so on in their Christian life. But in the end, they're going to believe in Christ. They're going to have faith in Him. And 
part of the exhortation here is, okay, don't leave that. Because remember the, the third warning back in chapter 6? Somebody who, who has all this opportunity and yet then turns from Christ, there's no hope. There's not a thing else that can be done for that person. They've rejected what was done for them. They've turned from it. So this is, part of this is in here, okay, don't, you know, you hold on to that. In fact, it's interesting, the word uh, profession of our faith, uh, I, let me check real quick before I say this so that I don't speak wrongly. It's a word that's more often translated hope. Expectancy is the idea, which has to do with faith, okay? That's a word that's generally associated with our view of the rapture, right? Titus 2 calls it that, our blessed hope, all right? But again, it's not hope like we often use it today. Oh, I sure hope this happens. It's an expectancy, which is rooted in faith. It's just a variation of the you know, wording, if you want to say. But we're to hold on to that. Because we have an expectancy in Christ, we hold on to that for, notice the parentheses at the end of verse 23, which is modifying that, for He is faithful that promised. You can have faith in Him because He is faithful. He's not going to fail you. He will do everything that He's promised to do. Now, sometimes we might think He's promised something that He hasn't, okay? We have to be careful of that. But He will do everything that He's promised. And some of His promises are conditional on us, okay? You could just say, for instance, in salvation. There's a promise of salvation, but you have to come to Him for it, all right? But for those that come to Him in salvation, it's a... It's a a set, uh, it's a work that God does that man can't undo, including you. And then we'll see, by the way, we're going to see in chapter 12 the other aspect of that when people say, well, what about if a Christian does this? What? Well, God is at work in his children's lives to keep them and bring them where he wants them to be. It's called chastening. All right? And it's not always punitive, by the way. It's, it's, a lot of it's just nurturing kind of chastening. In fact, it's associ- the words are associated there. Um, <clears throat> but, um, back to the, but we're to hold fast. We're to draw near. We're to hold fast. And then verse 24, 25, and I, I got to quit. But I don't have time to do these verses justice. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. In other words, the third exhortation here is that we're to consider. The word consider here has the idea of to look at, to observe, to think about, can have the idea of meditating on. It's the same word, and it's actually translated consider back in chapter 3, I think it's verse 1, where it says that we're to consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, of our profession, Jesus Christ. We're to be looking at him, considering him. Right now, when we look at others, all right, because this is talking about us with other Christians here, we're to be cons- looking at considering one another. It's not this is not here. It's not talking about looking at Christ. It's looking at others. All right. Now think about what it's saying. It's not saying look at others and be judgmental on them. Look at others and and you know think about how better you are, much better you are than them. <laughs> I mean, what is it, what are we to do as we look at others? We're to be considering how we can help others is really the idea of it, all right? To, it says, it uses the word provoke unto love and to good works. The word provoke is the idea of to instigate. How can we help others be more of what God wants them to be is the idea. Part of that is obviously... Uh, you know, a way you, you can get involved with people and, and help them from the Bible, so on like that. But part of that is just do us doing the right things so that others have a good example. And in chapter 11, when he talks about faith there, the hall of faith, so to speak, I mean, that's really what it's about there. Look at all these examples. Chapter 12 then says, seeing we have a great cloud of witnesses, all this, we have 
numerous multitudes of people that can be looked at as good examples. But then in chapter 12, it says looking unto Jesus. I mean, he's the example, right? But our lives are to be examples to others. That's, that's a big thing of what verse 24 and 25 are about. And then notice verse 25, not forsaking. Everybody, you know, oftentimes this is said to be one of the favorite verses of a pastor, you know. Uh, and let me just be up front and say, it's not necessarily directly just talking about showing up to church, okay? That's, that's, not, that's involved in the principle here. But we're not to be forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, all right? Um, Think about this again in that first century context, and I got to quit here, but uh, they were under pressure. There was, for some of these people that probably were the original recipients of the book of Hebrews, there literally was probably the idea of, do I just out and out go associate with these people? If I do, I'm going to be shunned. I'm going to be ostracized. I'm going to be criticized. I might lose my job. I might, you know, I mean, and in some places of the world today, that's a real threat for people. That's hard for us to understand because that's never been the case for us. At le- I mean, for the most part, there might be some limited ways, okay, that that, but we, we don't face the threat of real persecution for Christ that other people in the world. What if you lived in China? What if you lived in Saudi Arabia? Iran. You realize there are believers, true Christians in those countries? You don't often hear about them, but they're there. In fact, I would dare say the majority of God's people since Christ, okay, the majority of Christians in the last 2,000 years have lived under persecution, either in where where they are in the world today or throughout history. These last 240-some years in America with, you know, religious freedom and so on, that is a, that's an anomaly in the history of, of humanity. But keep in mind that, that Jesus said in Luke 12, to whom much is given, much is required. There's, there's a whole lot that ought to humble us about that. And I got to quit here. Maybe we'll... we'll finish these couple of verses as we get into the next sections here next week. But this is what's involved in that as he's exhorting them, draw near, hold fast, but we also can't forget about everybody. We, we have to consider others in everything that we do. All right. Thank you, Lord, for this part of your word. Help us to not just understand it, but to live it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.